Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. To get the latest updates or to watch this week's message, visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. Y'all ready to go today? All right, well, have you guys ever had um, a friend who gives you advice about life and as they are downloading this advice, you're thinking, wow, that's really good advice for you to do for yourself. <laughs> Don't tell me something that I need to do something that you're unwilling to do, right? We want people to practice what they preach, don't they? I think about that all the time. I'm up here literally preaching, and I have to ask myself, am I practicing? And you know, here's the thing, like, um, I am truly, and I'm not perfect by any stretch, I fail in the things that I preach often, however, like things like this fully devoted devotional, I'm like, I'm living it out, not because I want to be a good example, I'm doing devoted plus, not because I want to be a good example, but because I need it in my life, because I want to grow in my discipline, I want to grow my love for Jesus, and so I practice what I preach because I want to grow my love for the Lord more. And I think you are the same. You want, to, you want to go and live the things that you say are most important to you. But whenever someone says something that they're, not unwilling, they're unwilling to do themselves and they tell you to do it, like you ever had the boss who tells you to go do something that you know in their right mind they would never do. Those are the kind of bosses we don't really enjoy, right? We prefer the boss that's going to roll up the sleeves, that's going to, that's going to do it with us. Perhaps the boss that even if they aren't going to do it, we know they've been there, done that right? And you're like, okay, I respect that. When I was a kid, maybe 12 years old, a friend of mine and myself, we, we figured out one summer that if we rode our bikes over to a Little Caesars that was close to his house, that we could uh, do some odd jobs like clean the window, the front door, sweep off the, the porch, and they'd give us some pizza. And as in seventh grade, you know, getting some pizza in the summer, that was like you had it made, right? And so some easy labor. Well, one day the manager asked us to do something that he nor his employees clearly did not want to do. We walk, he, he, he brings us back. He says, hey, I want to show you something. And he shows us in the back room. He says, there's a, there's a stack of pizza pans literally from the floor to the ceiling. He says, I got it. He pitches this idea. He's like, now, if you guys will take those pans out into the back alley and clean them off with this hose and this soap right here, I'll give you four large pizzas. Now, I was only 12, but I could do math. The value of four hot and ready pizzas is debatable <laughs> as to having any value at all. <laughs> 30 years later, I can still go to a Little C's and drop 20 bucks and walk out with four pizzas. So with inflation and all the things that have occurred, I would say that this guy was actually trying to get us to do his dirty work for not a thing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He's trying to dupe these two kids into do it. And I'm proud to say that we did not fall for this trap, this seduction by the pizza pizza man. We literally said, ah, I don't think so. Thanks. No thanks. And we walked out. But that was like the end of the pizza run. Like we were like, we can't go back there now. But here's the thing. Here's my point. I wanted you, you know, first of all, did you catch that he wanted two 12-year-olds to go into the back alley and clean out the pans that they make your dinner in with a garden hose? You get what you pay for, my friends. <clears throat> Actually, that's not my point. My point is this. No one likes to be asked to do something. No one likes to be asked to do something that the asker 
is unwilling to do. Right? We don't follow people who tell us what to do. We follow people who show us how to live. So check this out. God's called us to some things. He's, he's, he's asked us to do some things. And we're just going to go through a list here. First of all, he's called us to be faithful to the end. But do you guys know that God was faithful first? Right? We just, that's what we've been singing. Check this out in, uh, in 2 Timothy 2.13. I read this, but I want to read it again. But even if we are faithless, he will still be full of faith, for he never wavers in his faithfulness to us. In other words, he doesn't ask us to do anything or be anyone that he hasn't anything that he hasn't already done or anything that he continues to be. So God wants to be faithful. Yes, he wants us to be faithful to, to him, but he's faithful to his promises to us. He goes before us, so to speak. You know, Christy's story these past few weeks, that's really what we've been talking about. It's like the amount of times that God went before her to take care of her, to heal her, to, to help her in her need. Like we continue to praise God for the way that he has been faithful to her. By the way, she's back on the front row. What's up? God, God has gone before her time and time again. So sometimes we are called to be faithful, but God was faithful next. Sometimes we're called to love. I mean, we are called to love recklessly, but don't you know that God loved us first? He has graciously, this is, uh, excuse me, 1 John 4, 19, 4, 19. Our love for others is our grateful re- response to the love God first demonstrated to us. So yeah, we love others, but because God loved us first. Next one. We're called to forgive all transgressions, but God forgave us first. Ephesians 4.32, has God graciously forgiven you? Heck yeah, he has. Then graciously forgive one another in the depths of Christ's love. You know what else he calls us to do? He calls us to give ourselves away, but don't you know that God gave to us first? John 3.16, what does it say? For this is how much God loved the world, that he gave his one and only son is a gift that for whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life, right? And then this last one here, he's called us to be fully devoted. But don't you know that God was fully devoted to us first? Yeah. Ephesians 1.4 says he chose us to be his very own, joining us to himself even before he laid the foundation of the universe. Do you understand? He was devoted to you before you were created, Our Heavenly Father is fully devoted to us. Way before you and I were called to be fully devoted to Him, He was thinking about you, and He was taking care of you, and He was going before you, and He was making sure you were going to be taken care of every step of the way. So a review right here. Yeah, we are called to be faithful, to love, to forgive, to give ourselves away, and to be fully devoted. But you got to know that God doesn't call us to do anything that He didn't do first and that He doesn't continue to be. And that's the kind of people we like to follow, the people that show us how to live, not tell us how to live. So if this is true, if God goes before us, God is faithful, and God has us. If all those things are true, most if not all Christians would say, yeah, I agree with those uh, beliefs. And they could probably give a faith-filled amen to the idea that, do, do you think God has you? And you would say amen. For example, right now, if I said, hey, give an amen if you believe God has you. Okay, that's fantastic. We agree with this. But I want to turn this idea on its head today. We agree, yet I have to wonder if we understand this about God, if we understand that God has you, then why does 83% of Christians operate from a secular worldview versus a biblical worldview? 
I mentioned this statistic a few weeks ago, but catch that. 83% of Christians operate from a secular worldview, meaning a non-biblical worldview. They operate more like their beliefs and their values are shaped from non-biblical, you know, all sorts of other ways instead of biblical values and teachings. So this immediately asks a question for me. And we can go to it. God wants you, but who really has you? God wants you. God wants you, but who really has you? Is it possible for you and me, is it possible for you and me that, yeah, we can say God has me, but we've allowed ourselves to be given to something else in a larger way. And so we can proclaim God has me, but yet we don't live God has me, which is not practicing what you preach, by the way. So a number of decades ago, or excuse me, a number of decades ago, a book was written, but for, since then, a, a, lot of the, a lot of the great influences in our culture have really been um, shaped by what we'll call public opinion, right? The public has a, has a very strong power in our society. Public opinion, what do people think of me? What, are, what does the world think of the situation? Well, this is the book I was mentioning several decades ago. Soren uh, Kierkegaard, he mentions this about the public. It says, the public is a phantom a monstrous abstraction. There is no such thing as the public. That statement made me scratch my head, like, what's he talking about? And I had to think about it and work with it for a while, and so I thought I would, in turn, share some of that with you and help you a little bit with this. So first of all, I want you to consider something. The public opinion is a powerful force in our culture. Allow me to give you a very practical but realistic scenario of how public opinion works. I'm going to read something that is a made-up scenario. And what I mean by made-up means I made it up. Okay? <laughs> so I'm just going to read this. Y'all ready? Imagine a road construction project is going to happen on Broadway Avenue. You guys know Broadway? Automobile alley, restaurants, businesses, coffee shops. It's all the rage. Imagine a construction project is going to happen on Broadway Avenue. And the intent of the project is to respond to a public outcry that the road is in bad condition. Now, specifically, what we mean by public outcry means is that there was a very loud group of a dozen or so people who kept emailing public works uh, complaining about the potholes and poor conditions. Now, like I said, this is made up. We all know that Broadway is not in bad condition. But this is a uh, hypothetical situation. So finally, the public works office responds to the public outcry and creates a master plan to address the problem. Now the project becomes more than just fixing potholes because if you're gonna do something, you might as well go all the way. The project also involves widening the road, but to widen the roads, they have to remove the street parking and do a number of other enhancements. So thus the road has to be shut down for three months. Yes, one, two, three months. Now in order to approve this new project, they have to put it up before city council and they also have to inform the public that this project is going to go up for vote before city council. And if anyone wants to oppose the project, they need to show up and voice their public opinion. No one from the public notices much because who cares about street enhancements? We all have other things to do besides go and talk about that. So no one from the public shows up to the meeting and the project passes with public approval. Now, there's an article written about the project in the newspaper. There are also a few spots on local news citing that the city is responding to the public's desire to improve Broadway Avenue. But in reality, it was a dozen or so people complaining about some potholes. 
But at this point, those in charge of the street project decide to utilize the press to become a public messaging campaign. And the message and the purpose of the project was to call, uh, was, uh, uses the so-called public outcry to shape public opinion. Meanwhile, because Broadway is closed for three months, seven businesses closed down, 10 more eke their way through and never fully recover. And in general, everyone who is impacted by the result of this project is disappointed and feel like it was way too much money and too time on something that had been solved much easier, uh, differently. And this whole project is framed, initiated, championed, and approved by the public. But in reality, the public had nothing to do with it because the public is a mirage. It's a phantom. It's not real. It's made up force. It's a made up force that our culture uses to manipulate and control us. Okay, so I'm not a conspiracy theorist. However, however, I must be aware of what is trying to control me, what is trying to shape my beliefs and ultimately my worldview, because Christians are clearly struggling with this, 83% of them. This made up scenario about public opinion, it's actually an extremely powerful force. It controls what we think, what we're afraid of. Yet it's usually a mirage, but it's actually the thing that for most of us, that really has us. Now my illustration, no one is to blame solely, right? People at Public Works are trying to do work for the public. The 12 noisy citizens are trying to be good citizens. The city council is trying to do their job. And at the end of the day, perhaps that road really did need to be fixed over the, and that project really need to happen, did need to happen. However, my point is, that we're using the public to control the public. In his classic book, The Present Age, Soren uh, Kierkegaard, he talks about the disembodied force of the public. And if you're like, where did this come from? Just follow me. There is a train of thought. He asserts that we are no longer, we no longer know people well enough to gauge what's really going on. So the press and media attempt to fill the relational gap by telling us what others think and they report on public opinion. Isn't that what social media does? It's what tells us what everyone is thinking, yeah. right? About a particular subject. But our social, uh, but social media doesn't actually report facts, does it? It reports opinions. So Kierkegaard, he says, the public, and this is my last one up from him, it's not on screen, but the public is a ghostly entity who is always present, who always has an opinion, and who in the age of de democracy is always right. Yet the public can't be challenged, and they have no responsibility, and they commit no actions. <laughs> so, the, the problem with this is that the public, since they have no responsibility, uh, the conviction, their convictions and beliefs of the public, they can easily change without any repercussion. Now, this is not true of you as an individual. You're, hold, you're told to hold your beliefs and your convictions, and you can't change them. Don't flip-flop, all that kind of stuff. But the so-called public reported on in the news and on social media and the things that we read, they're constantly changing what they say. So it's no wonder people struggle to know what to believe. It's no wonder people avoid deep-seated commitment, declaring with a loud voice what they really believe about something because we feel the pressure to flex with the times and the ebbs and flows of our culture because finding ourselves too far one way or the other from public opinion feels isolating, lonely, and scary. And so public opinion moves, and so do we. Who has you? The phantom of public opinion carries so much power in the minds of Christians today. We are constantly wondering and obsessing about what the world thinks of us. 
to the point that it's changing us. It's why 83% are drifting towards non-biblical worldviews. This happens all while saying what we gave a hearty amen to, yes, of course, God has me. So even if the public is a real power, even if it's not a mirage, we can't be held captive to it, can't we? Jesus himself faced the rejection of public opinion. This isn't on screen, but John 1.11 says he came to the very people he created, to those who should have recognized him, but they did not receive him, they rejected him. So God wants you, but who has you? I have, I have, I have three questions to help you determine the answer of, of that question. So three questions, and if you're really honest with yourself, this may help you answer who really has you in life. And here are the questions. Number one, what shapes my beliefs, values, and opinions? And before you say, ah, of course, the Bible. <laughs> the Bible shapes my opinions. Well, <laughs> I want you to pause. I want you to pause and consider. I'm working on different voices. <laughs> Realized last week's voice, I should never do it again. But anyway, I want you to pause and consider um, what voices speak the loudest to you day in and day out. What do, you, what do you do when it, for example, what do you do when a culturally divisive event or subject comes up? Do you seek counsel from God's word? Do you pray about it? Do you seek spiritual guidance from God's people? Or do you immediately read articles, scroll social media, listen to the experts who are shaping public opinion? You see, this past year, I know that public opinion has been incredibly powerful in the light of all that has happened in our world. What's happening in our nation, public opinion has been a very, very heavy force. And I wonder, though, what if Christians would have prayed for a quarter of the time that we spent scrolling and reading? What would have happened in this world if Christians would have just done what they're supposed to do? And they were actually practicing what they preached. And they prayed at the sign of brokenness instead of lean into it and try to get opinions from somewhere else. So that's question number one. What shapes my beliefs, values, and opinions? Question number two. What determines how you allocate your time and money? What's influencing those decisions? I single out time and money not because they're just like the most, uh, some of the most important resources that God gives us, but these are actual cultural idols in the present age, are they not? We worship our time and our money. We worship the clock and efficiency. We worship time, I mean, excuse me, money, and maybe perhaps the accumulation of more money or at minimum management of money. So we are obsessed over time and money management. We're obsessed over it. So with time, a few important considerations. Do you have a rhythm of work and rest? There's, that subject is covered over, over again in the scriptures, and so few of us really have thought about it much. Or do you give adequate time towards the thing God, the God, that God calls you to? You see, we give most of our available time to the thing we love the most. And when I say available time, I'm not talking about work hours. I'm talking about available time that you're like, I could do whatever I want with this time. We give most of that time to the thing that we love the most. And I'm just wondering, are you giving to the things, are you giving that time to the Lord in some way or some fashion? Money. Do you have a financial plan that is shaped by the teachings of scriptures where you begin with his plans and then go from there? Or is your financial plan more about 
you do what you want to do. You take care of first things first, whatever that looks like for you, and then you figure it out after that. Basically just kind of shooting from, if you will, the hip, or maybe it's shaped by security measures, or maybe it's shaped by best practices, or general rules of the general public opinion. And then number three, what captures your attention most frequently? Are you regularly distracted or even influenced by things like social media, talking heads, biased news sources, or even entertainment like movie and sports, which are, by the way, which are increasingly trying to uh, uh, influence us with public messaging and opinions in the way that they do their entertainment. A practical way to consider this is, what do you look, what's the first thing you look at in the morning, or perhaps for you, what's the last thing you look at at night? If, if it's social media or entertainment sources, or is, it, or is it God's word? I mean, what is it? It doesn't have to always be God's word, but what is it that you are consuming? What are you looking at? We have to put limits on things like media, because here's the thing. There, a lot of sources of media are intended to be fun, not sources of truth. We can't, we can't, we have to remember that. Social media can be fun, can it? I mean, anybody ever search like cat videos? You know what I mean? Like, actually, those are terrible. Don't search those. But there's a lot of fun out there, right? But social media can be fun. It can be a tool for your business. It can be a tool for, for your work. But don't make it a source of truth. Entertainment can be fun, but don't make it a source of truth. We must be ruthless about this. We must eliminate distraction from truth. God must capture our attention every day. We must be the, he must be the object of our affection. He must be our example that we follow and consider the way that he's called us to live every day. God and the things of God must be what we give our best attention to. We're going to give our attention to many things, but what captures your best attention? So let's review. Who has you? Here's the questions. What shapes my beliefs, values, and opinions? What determines how you allocate your time and money? And what captures your attention most frequently? If you answer honestly those questions and you discern that, oh, you know, maybe one, two, or even all three of those perhaps is the public or perhaps is something else other than God, well, then you have to discern what is the action steps that you need to take to reverse that trend. Because here's the thing, we have to take responsibility for our lives, and we have to understand, hey, if something else has me, i got to fix it, and I'm the one that can fix it. And so we as the church, God's people, must discern appropriate action that needs to be taken in order to move towards full devotion. So this is just like, yeah, like I need to do that. Because here's what we know. We know that 83% of Christians are struggling with this, and we need to take a step towards full devotion. And then to do that, we're going to do a couple things. We're going to go to God's word and his people for our beliefs, our values, and our opinions. We can no longer DIY our faith and our beliefs. We can't go with the ebb and flow of our culture. We are going to allow God to shape how we use our time and money. And we are going to give our best attention to be led by the things of God. Because we want to be able to say, God has me and mean it. We want to practice what we preach. Let's return to my little Caesar's experience. <laughs> Twelve years old, being asked to do something that the asker didn't want to do. You know, we've all been in a situation like this. Maybe not asked to clean off pizza pans in the back alley. 
with a garden hose, but <laughs> none of us, not, all of us have been asked to be able to do something that the person that was asking us didn't want to do themselves. We understand that, but we also know that God doesn't ask you to do anything or to be anyone that he hasn't done or continue to be. And I'm about finished here. We're going to worship some more in just a moment. But I, I want to I want to just pause for a minute because today, here's what I thought this message would be. I thought it would be a message that would be encouraging on one hand and challenging on the other. And I hope I've just challenged you with how you think about who really has you. But now I want to encourage you. God knows that his call in your life will at times be countercultural. It at times will be subversive. It'll be narrow in a world that loves broad brushstrokes. But just remember, he's not asking you to do something that he hasn't done himself. I keep saying that because we have to really understand that. So when people say that I've found God, I think you just need to remember that, no, actually God found you first. And when people say, oh, I gave my life to Jesus, you got to remember, no, no, no. Jesus gave his life for you first. When people say, I need more faith. Just remember, God is the one who was faithful first. I think it would be worth your time to sit down and to think about all the ways that God has been faithful to you. To think about all the ways that God has gone before you. All the ways that God has helped you. All the ways that God has provided for you. Even if life has been difficult, think about all the ways that God has been there in that last moment or in the right moment. And he's been there for you and he's never failed you. I think it's worth your time to sit down and to consider this because here's what's so important. When you do that, something happens because life, I, here's what I know, life can be very difficult. Life can be sad. Life can be incredibly cruel. Life can be described as not all that good. Just in the past couple months, you know, we've, we've experienced just people we know in our life that have passed away way before they should have. We've seen people lose jobs. We've seen people's marriages struggling, even failing. We've seen people going through cancer. We've seen people struggling with serious mental health issues. We've had so many conversations about this. And this is not 2020 carryover. This is fresh stuff from 2021. The world, the public, it's always looking for something to blame. Often they blame the Lord, often they blame God, but do not be confused, do not be duped by that. Because here's the thing, God doesn't cause the brokenness, that's a result of sin, but God surely is the hope to any brokenness and to any life that's in a struggle. Isaiah 41 says it best. Listen to this. It says, do not yield to fear, for I am always near. Never turn your gaze from me, for I am your faithful God. I will infuse you with my strength and help you in every situation. I will hold you firmly with my victorious right hand. I am Yahweh. Your mighty God, I grip your right hand and won't let you go. I whisper to you, 
don't be afraid. I am here to help you. If you're facing a difficult circumstance, situation, time in life, these words are for you. God will not let you go. God has you. I said at the beginning, I prayed, I want these three words to sink into your heart today. I want them to reverberate in your soul. I want you to understand that God has you more than you ever will understand how much he has you. But he has you. He's got that thing. Do you believe that? Because I just believe God has you way more than we realize in so many different ways. Listen to this. God has faith in you. God has endless love for you. God has forgiven you forever. God has given you all he has. God has devoted himself to you. God has patience with you. God has never failed you. God has always protected you. God has never given you more than you can handle. God has never left you. God has never changed. God has sacrificed himself for you. God has provided. God has helped you. God has called you back when you strayed from him. God has welcomed you home with open arms. God has given you hope. God has pulled you out of the pit. God has healed your heart. God has healed your mind. God has healed your body. God has healed your soul. God has always been there for you. God has always been your rock. God has limit, or God has listened to your cry. God has answered your prayer. God has given you gifts. God has been trustworthy. God has been generous. God has been the anchor to the ground. God has been your firm foundation. God has been your security. God has never let you down. God has been good to you. God has been really really good to you. God has been faithful to you. God has you, my friends. He has you. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to fret. You don't have to stress. He has you. He has everything. He, he holds, he grips your right hand. And he says, I won't let you go. I have you. Let's pray together. Father, we pray. We pray for every person in here today. May you encourage their heart today no matter where they are in their journey. Let me just ask right now on that, on that note, if you are in a place in your life where you would say, I've been in a struggle, it's been difficult, it's been hard, and I need God to hold my hand right now, I need his help. If you're in that place, I, I just wanna pray for you. No one's looking around. Would you just lift your hand real quick so I can say a prayer over anybody that's just saying, I need God to help me right now. Lift your hand. Hands all over the room. Father, we just pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you do exactly what you say in your word you're going to do. Your promises never fail. And we ask that, Father, you would be faithful in this moment, that you would grab a hold of those hands that need help right now in a significant, special way. Would you encourage them? Would you carry them? Would you do the things that only you can do, Father? We ask and implore and we, we intercede on behalf of our friends in this room that, Father, you would come and you would help and you would show love and you would share, you would show provision exactly the way it needs to be done. Listen, God wants you to know that, he that not only does he have you, but that he sees you, that he loves you. And I just wanna say, some of you today, yeah, God has you, but it's time for you to say back to him, God, I want you to have me. I wanna give my heart to you. Let me just ask that question today. Is there anyone in here that 
you've never given your life to Christ, if I was going to ask you, hey, have you ever surrendered your life to God? Have you ever been saved? Have you ever, uh, have you ever prayed a prayer that said, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. Uh, I want you to forgive my sins. Have you ever said anything like that? Have you had a moment with God where your life changed as a result of a decision you've made? And if you're like, I'm not sure if I've done that, my, my, my encouragement to, be, to you would be, you probably haven't then because it doesn't just happen accidentally. It happens on purpose. There's a moment in which you would say to God, I surrender my life to you. And, and, and if you've questioned that or wondered that, I just want to help you today because you can give your life to the Lord today and you can experience this reality that God has you in a whole new way. And so if you want to give your life to Jesus, I just want to invite you into a prayer. And I'll lead you in that prayer. And all you got to do is just repeat some of these words that I say. It's not a prayer out of the Bible. It's just a prayer of surrender that we often pray whenever we, um, whenever a person's doing this. And we love to see people give their life to Jesus. That's why we're here. We want to see people, more and more people in our city saying yes to Christ and following God. So if you want to pray this prayer and just whisper this, just repeat what I say. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Just say, Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. And the second line of this prayer is this, I ask for forgiveness of my sin. We have, to, we have to do that. We have to say, Lord, I'm, I confess that I'm a sinner and I need you in my life to forgive me. So say, I, for, I ask for forgiveness of my sin. I ask for forgiveness of my sin. And then we make a commitment. Say, I commit to you, Lord. I commit the, let me say it this way. I commit my life to you, Lord. I commit my life to you, Lord. And then say, thank you for saving me. Again, if you prayed that prayer, I wanna, I wanna say a prayer for you. Everybody's heads bowed and eyes are closed. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, I just wanna say a prayer to seal this moment. Just real courageously, would you just lift your hand if you prayed that prayer today? That's good, I see it. Anybody else? Lift your hand. Father, we just pray in the name of Jesus that you would seal this moment. See this moment where someone is stepping across the line, where people are saying yes to you. Father, may this be the moment that changes everything for them. We thank you for, for saving us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for us. And we thank you that, Father, you have us in the palm of your hand. And we just, uh, we celebrate that today. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. Can we just celebrate the God who saves, the God who's faithful? Why don't you stand with us? We're going to sing now. We're going to sing about the goodness of God. We're going to sing about how he is so, so good. Amen. Is God good? Amen. Let's praise together. This altar's open. We'd love for you to come and pray. Surrender to the Lord whatever he's putting on your heart today. you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about, or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you. Please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.